What's up, everybody? Welcome to the PhD Tongue and Girl podcast. Your host is me, Baulina Funua. I am a current PhD student at the University of Utah in the Education, Culture, and Society Department. I started this PhD journey fall of 2022, and I'm just finishing my first year of this PhD and have about four more years to go. In my process of pursuing a PhD, I thought it would be a good idea to share and talk about my experience as a student. I come across interesting topics that I know many people that are not in a PhD program would be interested. That being said, I know sometimes pursuing education can be difficult because there are a lot of barriers that stop us in finishing school. I hope to eventually go into these barriers that stop our journey of learning through higher education education or other institutions for marginalized groups, specifically for Pacific Islanders. So while we continue on to this podcast, I feel like I need to share a little bit about myself, of who I am, where I come from. Um, I am of Tongan descent and am indigenous to Oceania. My parents immigrated to the United States and were part of that great Tongan migration in the 60s. My mom is Melafi Naumuala from Tokomololo, Tonga, and my father is Ofafaivala Fonua from Homa, Tonga. I have five kids in my family and I'm third to the oldest as well as the oldest daughter. I up and still live in the unceded territory of the Paiute Shoshone tribes, also known as Utah. I think it's really important that I expand a little bit more about the education, cultural, and society program that I am pursuing my PhD in, also known as ECS. This department is focused on the study and pursuit of social justice in education using cutting-edge frameworks that address class, race, ethnicity, and gender in education policy and practice. So a lot of the classes that form the ECS programs are designed to help students construct a better understanding of patterns in education inequality while countering these inequalities by creating an environment where working class students and students of color can create, promote equal educational opportunities. So this spring semester, I was fortunate to take an ECS course called Decolonizing Praxis in Higher Education. The purpose of this course is to provide space to discuss critical decolonial, radical, and indigenous histories, theories, practices, and research methods in higher education. What exactly this means is that students like myself will engage in literature or research that has led to current colonial and neoliberal models of the university while exploring and co-designing potential futures around higher learning and knowledge exchange as forms of praxis. Part of this course is to create a final project that reflects on some of the concepts we discussed in this course by creating a critical response to decolonial practice in higher education. So this specific episode is to fulfill this course requirement while pushing me to check off a goal I have always had in hosting a podcast. So this is really exciting for me. For this first podcast, I'm extremely excited to introduce my first guest because I am Tongan. You know, I want to bring the best for you all who are listening. And that is true, not only in life, but in like virtual space, streaming spaces. And so I'm excited to introduce to you my professor of the decolonial practice in higher education course, Augustine Diaz, who goes by Tino. Dr. Diaz Ortino, which he prefers, was born and raised in Lenape lands, 
what is known as New York City. His family comes from Central and South America, and he currently settles on Tippinogus U and Shoshone Territory also known as American Fork, Utah. His career has mostly been in higher education and he continues to publish study and learn more about issues and innovation in higher education while also seeking the reimagination of higher learning and knowledge exchange. Tino recently graduated from the University of Utah in the Education, Culture, and Society program with his PhD. He has a family with a spouse, two kids, and a dog. They love being outdoors and enjoy doing activities together. This episode, I invite Tino to Thelanoa about a publication that we are working on together regarding the past Utah Legislative 2023 session on Bill 451, which sought out to prohibit schools and state entities from asking applicants anything about what they're doing to further diversity and inclusion. House Bill 427, that limits educators on reading discussions about racism, sexism, ageism, and religious discrimination in K through 12 school. And Senate Bill 283, a ban on diversity, equity, and inclusion departments in universities. I have a few links attached to the podcast if you would like to read more or have secondary sources that can help you become familiar with these specific bills. Okay, enough about me. Let's begin this Dalanoa, this podcast. Welcome, Tino. Welcome to the space. Let's talk about our frustrations, concerns, and where this took us. Yeah, no, appreciate being on the podcast, Nina. So thank you so much. Um, I was just really happy to be teaching a course like this, especially when it was first approached to me about decolonial praxis in higher ed, because for me, that's like a good melting between theory and practice and moving forward with some different ideas around that. But um but I also appreciate your your intro with uh, legislation, frustrations, and how that ties into some of the work we're doing, and then how that also like pushed us to potentially create this publication where we're bringing all these ideas together and really starting um, towards the tail end of the, the legislative session. Um, I began to be inspired more or less from the readings in the sense of like, what am I truly looking at? Why am I looking at it? And why am I beating myself to death um, to secure these policies, to advocate for them, to um, to engage them? And I remember just discussing that with you one day, being like, hey, like, is this how you're feeling too? And then you were sharing really similar sentiment. And we decided to like collab on a piece when we were like, you know what? Why are we doing this? And then taking a deeper dive and a more critical look at um, who we are in place with our communities, what they really advocate for, and what we should be doing. And so I think that really like coalesced more or less to move forward in a specific direction. Yeah, I feel like when we were talking, we really felt beat up, like just drained um, going through that legislative session and seeing these bills being um, initiated through the Utah State Legislation. And it kind of made it hard to, I mean, for myself to want to like move forward. I felt like in a way that I was frozen and stuck Mm -hmm. of wanting to, you know, go to school, but even participate in the work that the ECS program um, 
is designed to do, which is to address inequalities and to approach things with a transformative lens. And so um, one thing that was really inspiring throughout this whole process of the Utah legislation was the works of Black women in the state of Utah. And I just felt like um, I'm going to drop this person, Darlene, who was a huge person of advocating against these bills. So if you're interested, you can have a link to her social media and be sure to follow her. But she really got online and help rally people together and just pretty much put out a lot of what was happening and what these bills meant in kind of a language that a lot of people could understand and felt the need that they should participate in this type of conversation or these types of policies that are trying to be passed like state level. But again, it was like such a miss for a lot of Pacific Islanders to go up and advocate against these bills. And so a large like push came from people who were Black women. And so that just makes me even more frustrated because I'm like, why can't we as, you know, marginalized groups, but I'll speak for myself, um, you know, Pacific Islanders or specifically Tongan. In these political processes, here is data shows that in Utah, are three out of 50 Pacific Islanders are registered voters and vote. Like that's such a low voter turnout in of itself right and that's not AAPI that's just NHPI which is Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders and I learned like a new term voting health cost of voting health and it comes from like a term of voting paradox which means like this idea if you have like a low voting turnout that kind of um, correlates with what your community's health looks like to the way people turn up to the voting ballot. I think in in Utah, you also have a really strong like Latin American presence in the state. And one that I would say is to a certain degree involved in the politics of the state. But that being said, like the visibility is not there. Like I don't see us at the Hill as community members, as legislative bodies. And there are some nonprofits Comunidades Unidas, for example, who do get involved in like lobbying efforts, but like that's not visible. You don't see that. You don't see like community members coming to the forefront of these discussions. And so my hat's off to the Black women involved in the legislative like process. They have um, put in hard work to see advocacy pan out in these processes. What's unfortunate though is when these pro like these efforts um only go so far right like like the bills still get passed they might be changing i know one of them's in study session right now i think it's the higher ed one and dei um but still like there's others that you you literally fight tooth and nail for with the same result because of the overwhelming like power dynamics in the legislature of whiteness of not even having like a like a whole like like 
multi-ethnic front that's pushing for these things, right? Latin American, Black, Pacifica, and more, you know? And, and that's where I, I really get frustrated too. And, and that for me is, um, I, try to, I try to think about like my emotional ties within that. And, and that's difficult for me in the sense of like, like am I doing enough or am I, am I not helping out enough? And, and then that, that impacts me personally, right? Like, I, like I, I've done, I communicated everything to my legislators. I've tried to rally around with other community members. I've worked um, spreading their messages and spreading the messages of those folks involved and still not seeing the results that we wanted to see, but also still being forced to do things locally. Like it's just too much. And then when you don't get the results that you hope for, you're like, man, did I do enough? And that's not, that's not your fault, right? That's what I would argue white supremacy makes you want to feel guilt and shame for things like that. And, and that's, uh, and that does even more damage to your bodies and like as a community, right? At least that's my thinking, you know? Yeah. Like, do you ever go to, who do you unpack this with? You know, some of your frustrations, because I go to my parents and I'm just like, my mom will look at me and she's like, what's wrong with you? And, uh, you know, especially during this specific situation, I'm like, we're going to be erased. Like all (laughs) these policies are just not going to see us. And it's so devastating. And I don't think I can handle it. And my mom's sitting there like so confused, like why I'm doing this, why I'm melting and just having this meltdown. And it makes me you know, irritated that she's not just as much devastated about the conditions that, you know, marginalized black and brown groups, communities have to put up with these, you know, um, racist systems. And she's so confused, but she's so, she's confusing me for acting this way, but she is so confident in who she is as a person, as a Tongan woman. And same with my dad, like so confident of being Tongan and who they are that I'm like, they're like, well, these policies were never existed when we have been, since we've been here since the sixties, but I still feel very much present. I still feel like I am very much here and I am living and I'm being, and I am a Tongan. Um, despite these policies or bills not being open for us. And it really made me think more about, you know, the way I'm influenced and how I've you know, given power to such a white supremacist structure and system to count me in, to accept me, to accept my community. And um, it made me reevaluate what does it mean to decolonize Mm -hmm. from like these structures that have my emotions spiraling. I don't know, like how are you unpacking with someone? Do you unpack with people? Because I unpack with my parents and not, I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but it felt so good to unpack with them. But also it felt so good to get a breath of fresh air when my mom was like, I feel like I'm present. I feel that I am here. I don't feel like 
anyone is erasing me. I, I love that you pointed that out. I think in a similar spirit, my mom responds in a similar way. She's from Ecuador and on the coast where uh, there's a lot of Otovalo and Kanadi people still. Um, and uh, in her mind, the state will always try and do things to like repress and uh, erase and so on. But uh, people are still there, like like we still exist, right? And and so she, I feel like she finds um, beauty and peace in the agency of humanity to be able to continue, right? Um, and my dad, I don't know, my dad low key might be a fascist to be honest with you. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, but he he's also like pretty like critical of like state governments and things like that. Um, but he sees them as like a necessity uh, for like stability. So it's, it's a more complicated relationship with that perspective. But that being said, um, it's interesting to note that in his life, he's had to navigate or go around state processes to continue. And he's done that well, right? Like he's managed to exist despite... Um, uh, repression state repression in Honduras he's managed to like continue and like be happy and have children and here in the U.S. despite arriving through more like like really messy migratory pro like processes that have basically limited them in some ways you know but still continues to thrive still continues to like be happy and like be connected with family so I think to your point like yeah like our parents will remind us constantly like the state will always do something but but we are stronger than the state. Like we, we will, like our spirits are stronger, right? And I, that's how I feel. And, um, and I'm trying to take lessons from that because I feel like I forget that a lot. You know what I mean? Like I forget, like, well, how do I put it? I, I feel like, you know, that is, that is the crux of belonging. That is the crux of inclusion and recognition where, you know, people want you to be a part of these systems so you can help change them. But the the hard part is that once you like are involved and engaged within these systems, you kind of become part of that system. In some ways, very complicit, and, and in some ways, your failure your failure to change some of these things is like, well, like, you know, you're you're part of that machine that kept going, you know. And it's complicated, and, and I'm not trying to like hate on folks who are involved. Like for for instance, like the many black women who were involved at the state legislature, like, like respect to you, but I think it's also multiple approaches that are needed, not just that. What I get frustrated with is like the invalidation of this like community-centric approach of this like respect and acknowledgement of our practices and who we are as communities. I don't know if that makes sense, but like that's it how- It makes so much sense. Yeah. Like keep going. Cause I no, just, no. <laughs> I just have to agree. I'm like, yes, that does make sense. And, you know, I am a first year in my PhD program, so I'm fairly new to a lot of like this academic language and chatter. So um, I'm just barely coming into like what you were talking about, what these programs offer us being collective but only having a one-way approach and that this is how we're going to approach inequality. And there's very um, lack of different ways that are 
taught and acceptable to move in these um, systems of oppression. And so I'm so glad that you're bringing that up. It just finally clicked in my head as you were talking. So please, <laughs> please keep going. <laughs> well, well, no, but I, but I appreciate it. Like the way you framed it. Right. And the, the stories you brought on with your parents that like really provided context to that. Cause I, you did this to me, like when we were like working on uh, like our intro and you're like, we need a story. We need stories to validate these experiences. We need stories to like fill it in. Right. And you're so right. Like how stories um, and maybe that's a really good point. Like, what are the stories that we're missing that show how we push back in our own way? You know what I mean? And and you asked earlier about like who do I impact this with? Like, yeah, I impact this mostly with my mom because like like I said, my dad I think is a low key fascist. <laughs> like, I really I really believe that, but I love him still. And but I, <laughs> I, I I practice these conversations with my mom. Um, I also have an incredible therapist that like, just listen, <laughs> like, I pay you to listen, right? My partner is amazing. Uh, and like, I have some guy friends that I feel like I can vibe with some of these conversations with. But, um, but yeah, I, I think uh, the question for me becomes, how do we go about that, right? Like, how do we go about like, building foundations and like going back to go forward, I guess, like going back within our communities to then hopefully get a better idea of how we move forward, you know? Yeah. So this week in our class, we were talking about deep thinking. Yes. And so I kind of want to bring some of that into this conversation <clears throat> because, you know, if we continue and I'm saying we as like, now we're part of that machine that is a problem, right? We, that academic machine that feels like there's one decolonial way of approaching, you know, transformative justice within, you know, a system that continues to want to erase us out. And <clears throat> like, when we talk about deep thinking, I'm really happy that you had brought in Teresia Tewa's piece from Salt and Water. Sorry, I probably ruined that title. It's right salt, here. Salt but, and Tears or something? Yeah, Salt and Tears. Sorry, sorry, y'all. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm just going to say I'll come to this podcast as I am. But yeah, it's Sweat <laughs> and Salt Water. And it oh, has... I didn't get it right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's from the late Teresia Tewa and um, how she talks about like this problem and she says there's so much knowledge like of and she's specifically speaking to Pacific Islanders but I feel like this approach can be applied to a lot of different communities that are looking to navigate through such harmful structures that continuously write them in a specific way or write them out or erase them. And she approaches it as needing to think deep and ways that are not just exclusive to how, again, how we've been written in the past. And so, you know, when we are coming up with this Dalanoa of what it is to exist in these tough you know, environments and ways that are just not such a monolithic experience. 
Um, what are your thoughts or what have you kind of experienced on your own um, ways to navigate through, you know, higher education in, in this aspect of diversity and inclusion and what that looks like, but only having like a one-sided approach? Yeah, I by the way, I loved how you framed that. That was really like <laughs> like, like um synthesizing analyses of uh Tewa's work. Like so like I was really good. Like um <laughs> I I I think there are two notions for me that stand out from her work that I I that's why that's what I resonated with. So you're to your point of like she's speaking to specific islander communities like the diaspora but she's also like, like her work is very much applicable in so many settings, right? Um, among so many communities. And so like the, the, the impression of deep work um, is powerful because, because um, I feel like you need depth for like serious reflection. Like you need that, um, especially as you're like, going against structures and systems. And to the point that you presented of like higher education, higher ed, and you know this, higher ed is deeply rooted. It's a deeply rooted system, deeply rooted. Like we haven't changed anything that falls out of the colonial order within higher ed, even though people claim like, oh, this is like decolonizing it, or this is like, <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm like, I don't know about all that. And so, but that takes deep reflection. It takes deep work, right? And that even means owning your own complicity within those systems, owning like your own, the fact that like, I'm part of this messy machine and owning that. And then once I came across that, once I was able to acknowledge that, like all these pathways opened up for me, not just within, but outside, especially outside, right? Because I think as educators or practitioners in higher ed, you're so caught up in the in the internal like turmoil of that world. Like you need to fix this, you need to fix that. And the systems make you think that you have to fix all these things, right? And, but the truth is they're working by design. They're working like as they should be, exclusive, violent, interpersonally, like erasive, or is that even a word? Erasive, genocidal? Sure, we're yeah, gonna make sure. it a word. We're making a word. But, <laughs> but like- so like doing that, that kind of deep work allowed me to realize there is so much else out there that I could be engaging with. I don't have to be here to just do good. And then her also, her, her metaphor or analogy with like, you know, the vodka or canoe, like as a journey, like as a learning journey and how in those learning journeys, you have so many like responsibilities, roles, and like it's communal and it's collective. And that pushed me also to realize how that kind of work can happen outside the university too, you know? And, and I don't know, like, and, that, and that's a journey. That's not like constrained by time, like a, like a corporate project, whatever, right? Like a timeline. Like, no, like this journey continues and it looks very different. And honestly, it inspired me to like, really like dig in, dig into Utah County. Like what is missing here? And a, that's, lot. a lot, a lot, yeah, a, a lot, lot, by the way, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot, it's a <laughs> so, lot. I love but that. Yeah. just so to give you guys a little bit, um, of yeah. just like image of Utah County. So the university of Utah is in Salt Lake County and Utah County is home to two very 
well, one very conservative university and then the other will say it's not that conservative, but it's just like a sister school to the other one. <laughs> and so Tino and myself live in Utah County, which is like very influenced by, you know, the predominant religion here. Totally. And like wanting to go into what it is to deep think and just expand on that a little bit more because you said some of this work doesn't always have to be in higher education and for the sake of people not knowing what higher ed is it's college it's university it's a fancy word that's given to you know these schools to make you all know that it is higher and above all the rest of the schools. No, I'm just kidding. But really, no, really just, <laughs> but it's it means college and university. And um, but again, to your point, you said there's ways to navigate, to have deep thought that can go beyond the walls of school. And, um, you know, for a long time and still to this day, we are fed the idea that um organized institution like organized learning through a university through a college is the only way to deep think and gives you only like allows you to be a credible source person if you go to these institutions and if you finish and have that degree and so maybe you can speak to the group that you're running um, on your own that is not at a university and that is also ran in this very much influenced space of the predominant religion that is outside of school and kind of talk about some of the deep thinking y'all are doing there because I think it's very powerful. Yeah, no, I appreciate you mentioning that because um it's it's relatively new like in the in late last year like mid to late last year and i have to give a shout out to an individual named boa boa is from peruvian descent also queer uses they them pronouns and they are in probably one of the most brilliant individuals i ever met in my life and they never did an ounce of university you know what i mean like never and yet they're they're like way to like critically read subjects to become so aware of like dense like philosophical topics. I'm like, holy hell, like that's incredible. Like I feel like I had to go to grad school to learn that crap. And then and Boa just knows a lot of it. Um Boa is also young, like early mid-20s, I think. And um, but together. And that's what I believe is is beautiful. Like again, the vaca, the canoe, but the canoe is is as much communal as it is individual, right? And and having that relationship with Bo, we were we were deeply thinking, meeting after meeting, platica after platica, which is like another way of saying Talanoa, but for Latin American communities, right? Storytelling, conversation, etc. Um, of like, what is it that we need here for our community specifically, right? And like, whatever exists, oftentimes exists in Salt Lake but we don't have anything here. And so we really thought through so many of those things. And, and together we built a group called the Amistad Collective, Amistad Meeting Friendship or Relationships. And, um, and it's taken off in a way that we have, we did not expect, but 
I think that also feeds us because that that just shows the need for things like that here locally, right? Like the desire for things like that locally. Um, and so for me, that is that is decolonial praxis, that is outside of institutions, that is with community, that is with people. Something I think we're still trying to move towards, and you've spoken to this, Lena, um, is how do we also find like the aspects about our community that are decolonial, that are indigenous, and so on, and 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 be okay with that, be present with that, like you like you know like your parents, like we are we are happy with who we are. And I feel like we're still learning that, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I'm curious about like your group, because you have a group too, don't you? Like you, you you help run a group as well. And and I feel like that is a learning space too. And I think there's like, there's a lot of commonality in some ways. Yeah, so I'm part of an organizing <clears throat> space for um, learning Tongan and cultures, so not only the language, but the culture as well. And it's called Ofakitonga. The name was given by um, Her Royal Highness, Princess Bilulavu. And I just feel like super um, grateful and really humble to be in that space. And we're currently writing a publication for that piece and again like I'm the that's only awesome. That's like, awesome. I'm actually like the only person in school in the uh, organizing oh, committee but they were like hey we gotta publish and I was like damn it I do that for school already I don't want to do that here but you know anything for the culture anything <laughs> so um we're working on this piece and it's called well, it's influenced by the Tongan Research Association's theme of puke puke fonua, like holding onto the land tightly and like, how are we doing that? And so like, it's just super empowering. But anyways, a little bit about the group is that um, we meet weekly and it's over Zoom and people, all Tongans throughout like the whole world, in the region of Tonga, as well as in New Zealand, Australia, the US, anywhere. If you are Tongan, um, you're invited to this virtual space. It's a free learning space. And <clears throat> we have like different roles that we see each generation helping participate in fulfilling the needs of this space. So we really ask for like people who fall in as, you know, baby boomers, <laughs> Gen X to really come and to help teach the language because we've noticed oh, like majority awesome. of people Tongans who are that fall under this you know umbrella term of Gen X like are probably some of the last um, groups of people who speak Tongan and then um, Gen Z we ask them to come and participate in part of the um, of a Kitonga space when we don't talk about language and culture so much where we just want to say what's hot what's popping like where is our culture right now so we have this section called Botala Noa which is to speak late at night and they like kind of keep us up with the trends and tell us what's cool what's not and it's fun because we have such a young group of Tongans that are there showing us you know the latest trends fashion um dance moves 
but artwork and then there's us gen gen y the millennials shout out to the millennials <laughs> and, and we're very much again the organizing piece that keeps people together and collected and so <clears throat> just wanting to say there's room for everyone you know in our community and to see that everyone is so valuable and they bring something to the table. And I love that about Teresia Tewa's piece, just to kind of bring us back of, you know, if we just take different parts of like our culture our, and what has been published about us, you know, specifically she speaks to Pacific Islanders of how people have to recognize the ocean and the Pacific and how vast it is and how big it is to credit us for being a knowledgeable source of, you know, people when really like size should not matter of how like your proximity to space and your proximity to how wide or how big you are. It kind of is just... Um, something that's so white supremacy, you know, to prove size, to prove how big you are. And she was talking in her piece that aside from like all these cool things about the Pacific of how big the ocean is and how deep it can go, like there's a lot of other cool things that make the Pacific amazing too. Mm. And um, I like that really resonated with me because you know, I feel like the Ofakitonga space is a true reflection of whether you are super young or you feel like, why would the young generation want to talk to me as an old person? Um, there's just so much wealth, but also wealth in sharing knowledge and that the knowledge doesn't always have to be like well liked <laughs> and it doesn't have to be like one of the things that you know your community has been known for like for instance people love a luau but that we don't need to be doing that all the time y'all <laughs> like not we the can luau. do we <laughs> not the luau no I'm just kidding but I mean that's that's definitely an important piece but that's such a like that's only one piece of like the culture and there are so many empowering and like other beautiful things but also other non-beautiful things that should be talked about and so anyways what do you have any things like yeah, yeah I mean I'm, I'm sorry I cut you off what were you no you're no you're, you didn't cut me off please please go on <laughs> No, but like I, I, I really loved like your your TED talk, if you will. <laughs> it was not you so, making it, me die it, here. It was so good. It was so good because like I feel like tying her work with the work you're doing with the group, like I think that's just powerful, and it and it shows, it demonstrates the need for us as individuals, like within these communities, to to not get so caught up I mean, this is just an opinion of mine and i'm not sure if you share it or like we, but we've talked about these things um to not just solely get caught up in the 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 consequences of policies and like 
the 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 political maneuvering and like the legislative like blah 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 like to not just get caught up in that but seeing that there is something also equally or even more i would argue beautiful that we need to do and that's the work within our communities as well like building bridges within our communities strengthening relationships and that means grinding through some of the tension that we have within our communities and also intergenerational work i love that y'all are doing that i think Amistad wants to get there, but we, it was really complicated because we had a, we had a huge community gathering. It was so cool to see in Provo, so powerful, like 50 people showed up and we had two older folks there. Um, you know, one was like a mother of a, of a young person that was attending and the other one was like an uncle, like a tío of someone who was attending as well. And the mom, like when we were doing introductions, she got up and she's introducing herself and she's like, this is so cool. I also want to say in Spanish, right? I also want to say that I really admired the white people. <laughs> Everyone just started chuckling, right? And so, and like, and those are some of the tensions you have to work through, right? Like you can't just avoid that stuff. Like you have to work through those things. You have to discuss those things and, and realize that even intergenerational work is complicated, but it's powerful when it can make, when it can become something. Like I love the fact that y'all have like roles and like relationships of learning throughout those generations, right? That's awesome. So, and, and I think that's the work you need to do within to move forward. Yes. So I want to kind of hear a little bit more about, you know, how I was like pushing for more stories to be shared in our publication. And I want to like offer you some space of what are like what is a story that you feel really resonates with you know the main theme of our publication mm -hmm. and let me tell you all we just barely figured out what the main theme was so <laughs> like Thanks. I feel like people just think like educators or scholars just know what we're doing and majority of the time for me I'll speak for myself I never know how things are going to end up <laughs> in a paper right. and I'm like let me just show up and see how it goes but like if you have a story that you feel like will be included and maybe it won't but like that goes towards this theme of just validating our types of learning and that it doesn't always have to be part of what um, people role in academia as an acceptable way to approach systemic oppression. Yeah, thank you. I, I actually do have a story that, I, that I'd like to share in the publication. And so you're going to hear it first before it goes in there. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's a story that my dad has told me that and when I went often, he's told me this one often. And then he's and then other aunties or tias in my in my family have told me this over and over again as a reminder, like that our people are are not just resilient, but they are advanced, they move forward despite so many things, you know. And and so this is a story from my grandma. Um so my grandma in Honduras, she comes from La Ceiba, but there's like a town further south of that. Um, and don't remember the exact name. It's, it's actually escaping me. And I hate that because I'm like, I, I studied it so hard. And now, now it's like, and I can't remember it. But it's about a half hour or an hour south of like the city La Ceiba. Um, and 
that part of Honduras, the coastal part of Honduras is very, I would argue, Afro-Hondureño or like Afro-Honduran because of enslaved folks who settled there but also escaped and, you know, like uh, form relationships with local indigenous tribes. So people there are a little bit more darker or they have more kinkier hair, you know, things like that from like inland in Honduras where they're like more indigenous and then north where they're like, they look more fair or like European descent, right? So that's her. Like if she came to the States, people would probably assume she's African-American to be honest with you. That's how racialized, that's her racialized background, right? We don't know like past that, except that we know that um, her mom came from the rebellions in the thirties and that um, she she passed away because of like strife there. And so she was an orphan. She didn't know who her dad was or anything like that. So she was an orphan and she was passed around a lot between groups of family members and things like that. She ended up with a specific family in the city of La Ceiba, which is on the coast of Honduras. Again, it's a very Afro, Honduran town, but there are like, there is an elite there that is more light-skinned. And um, she was given to one of them as like a maid, to be honest. And uh, she was young, probably like early teens, no, even early, younger than that, like maybe 10 or so. And she was cleaning for them and doing all things like that. But they would beat her often. They would Oof. beat her, like call her names because she was dark and had really kinky hair. Like she was, um, they called her fair, like, or ugly or like um, things like that, you know. And then one day, um, I guess the beating got so bad that when they left for like a family trip, she said, I'm going to burn this mother down. <laughs> so she burned down the house and escaped. And her life after that was incredibly hard. Um, she had children not too long after that as well. Um, and raised them on the street corner and like um, built like a little food like stand and, and made a living that way. But, um, but her journey also ended up like she also had like 14 kids just throwing that out there like she was it was just constant and, and there, there were many men involved in that and so people don't really know like grandfathers and everything like that but incredible woman and they she built like this mini little mini market from the work she's done and then she ended up in new york and then she brought some family members here for that and it's just like her her story is just like this journey of like hardship but also extreme beauty because she's have she has all these kids now who are like watching over her and taking care of her in her extreme old age, you know? And it all started with, by burning the house down, you know? And that to me, like, I don't know, you can take that, that message a lot of ways, but part of me like always remembers like Abuelita or my grandmother, like burned the house down to seek whatever it was she saw it. and she found it, you know? So that's a story that I feel like was just, it resonates with me on, on and on. And I tell my sons that story and they're like, so do we burn this house down? Like, no, don't do that. We love you. We take care of you. Don't burn this house down. <laughs> yeah, that's such like a true story of abolitionists, you yeah. know? And I feel like you got to have that story written and put a picture of your home <laughs> there and hang it. <laughs> I mean, that's just so, that's so powerful. I actually, you know, scrolling on social media, the thing that I do. And um, one of my favorite Pacific 
scholars is Jamaica Ozario. And she was talking about on her Twitter feed was that she was writing a piece and it was just taking her quite some time to do that. And she said that she had to kill a piece of her writing. So because she she was so sad that she had to do that. And I completely understand because, you know, writing is very hard. And she's but in her tweet, she said, I have to kill it so I can revive it. And so it was giving me that type of energy of being able to um you know, walk away from something or to, you know, do away with something that you're very passionate because it might be hindering you in some shape, way or form, but you know that it will be revitalized in some way because the work that you're doing to leave it brings it back. I was like, whew, that's, that's some real stuff right there. That's that's literally fire right there. I was like, girl, yes, <laughs> I'm honestly, I love Twitter. I love social media. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I'm, I'm on it too much, y'all. So I just wanted to share like a story myself because I feel like yeah. storytelling is so important and it's often, you know, not validated because it makes us feel well for one thing it makes people feel uncomfortable that are that you know are really accommodated through these structures of oppression that are not oppressed by them and so having to hear other people's stories that tell them like hey this is how we've experienced it and it's not the same way that you have and it's making it very difficult to be in space because we are basically not surviving. And so, um, you know, I grew up in East Mill Creek, Utah, which is a very um, wealthy part of Salt Lake. But when people hear that, they're always like eye rolling me when I offer some type of conversation to bring to the table of poverty or of marginalized folks and which you know makes so much sense and I like oftentimes I'm just like okay yeah I completely understand why you feel this way but um just to like offer some validation I always said (laughs) to myself I live in a wealthy area but I am the poor person in that wealthy area (laughs) like the reality yeah I'm like we really are struggling like my parents really struggled in that area and since we're talking about homes I feel like I should talk about this and maybe I can figure out how to include this but um let me try not to get too choked up about it because it was very traumatizing but but also like super healthy and it's one of the stories I shared in my essay to get into um (laughs) it's all good it's all good into getting into PhD school (laughs) uh 
Um, so I had had my application written all beforehand and, um, it didn't feel right when I was submitting it because I just didn't feel like it was accounting for what I was experiencing at that moment. <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry. You're good. You're good. <laughs> powerful. So <clears throat> my dad was losing his home at the time and I was like oh I need to share the story I don't know why but I just need to put it in my application and so I pretty much deleted everything that I had prepared for and a week in that this application for a PhD um was due was when I decided to do that. And I'm like, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm pretty much done, but I just feel like I have to share the story. And so my dad's about to lose his house because the city is tired of, you know, his crap, which for reals, it was, it was crap. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Like my dad is a person who cannot finish a project. And, you know, I didn't even realize what that meant. I just felt like it's normal for people to not finish projects. And so I didn't even think that it could be due to mental health. And so thankfully, you know, other parts of social media, like somewhere on TikTok and a video found its way to me saying, you know, have you ever wondered why people don't finish projects? If you ever notice someone doesn't finish a project, it could be that they suffer from mental health. And I was like, what? And then it started to make sense. I, not that I'm a doctor or that I want to diagnose him, but I just want to say like a lot of the hard things that my dad went through, he always started a project at that specific time. And so anyways, he created like this massive addition that never got done. And then the yard work was just super unmanageable. And so our neighbors were constantly calling the city. And finally, the city had gotten tired of it and put like a notice onto my parents' house. And at that time, you know my dad just could not let go of this home. Like it was just so difficult to want to even consider selling it. He had like tried all these other options of ways that he could keep this house. And then the more that my siblings and myself got together, um, we started to put like pros and cons list of what it would be to have to keep this house and what it would be to, you know, sell the home and so it was very difficult on our end too to like get rid of a home that you know was very like it was a beautiful life but also it was very difficult to live there too and so when it came down to there's just so many um cons in keeping the home like it came down to it that we just could not afford to keep it and so just like what we've been talking about burning houses down and you know 
being able to walk away from things, that was just something we knew we had to do because there was just no way that the city itself was going to let us keep this home because they had had sanctions on this home that like exceeded a hundred thousand dollars. So I was like, there's just no way that this is possible. We would keep the home and they would, we'd have to pay a hundred thousand dollars in fees, just in fees. Um, and then we would have to use ex like additional money to, you know, take care of all the problems that the home had. And so when we put the house on the market, we had like a lot of people approaching us to purchase the home. And it was, it felt good because I was like, great, at least somebody's going, like, at least my dad's going to get something for this home. And I felt good about that. And when we were able to sell it a year after, it took us a year because we would constantly be signing, like going into contract with people. And then my dad just could not do it. He like kept pulling out. And so, and people were just not waiting for him or putting up with that. And as he kept pulling out, like the price just kept getting lower. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, I hope we get something for him to take home because this is, I don't know how long this is going to, um, we're going to be able to walk away with by the end of this. And so anyways, he ends up, we end up settling and selling and it was really beautiful with, after like six months, the person who had purchased the home had brought my dad back in to show him what he had done and like things that he kept that my dad did like when he was building and you know my dad finally had closure at that time he didn't have closure when we sold the home he was very um upset about it still then but when he was brought in and saw like that the guy had felt like some of the woodwork he had done in the home was good and he wanted to keep it And like he had changed things around in the house, like moving the staircase to downstairs to be in another part of the home. And my dad's like, wow, I never thought that, you know, I never thought to do that. And I feel like this story, how it sits with me is sometimes, you know, we're always pitted against each other to feel like they're we have to exist in polar opposites. And like the other people on the other end are just horrible and then they feel like we're just they are we as in being like you know marginalized groups but specifically my family at this time that we're incapable of you know living or assimilating into society and um but I feel like we can exist in the middle and that's like a huge thing that I really feel like I'm leaning into as I'm in this PhD program is existing in the middle and that that doesn't necessarily mean that educate like being in education at an institution is the absolute wrong answer you know or that being in the community and doing grassroots educational programs is you know, the only option, but that there can also be middle ground for a lot of things. And um, I loved 
again, how the person my parents sold the house to was able to bring us in and offer that closure. And obviously gentrification plays a huge role into this and as well as still racial structures. But um, but I just wanna like utilize the story for a place to be in the middle, to meet in the middle and to not live by absolutes that things are just the way that they are. And like for the women who continue to, specifically black women who continue to go up to the hill and fight for policy changes and to continue to want to see us written into the curriculum of education, like shout out to them. And that's definitely a space that we can be in as well, but also still um, feel seen outside of those spaces as well and not have to use those structures to feel validated. And so anyways, Tino, do you have any like final remarks or like anything else to share? That was, that was a great story, Lena. Thank you for sharing that. Like, I think my biggest lesson from that story was like, there's power in meeting in the middle. You said this, you know, there's power like in meeting in the middle that realizing the world is not binary like this or that. And I think to the point of like what we're trying to do is because we're not trying to say that. We're not trying to say this is better than this or like that is better than this. What we're trying to say is like these things take time. Deep learning is required. And the journey really is kind of meeting towards the middle, you know? And I and I really love that. So like I thank you for sharing that. That was that was powerful. Seriously. I mean you cried. Uh, a little bit, oh, I hate I hate my, <laughs> I hate myself for crying, y'all. And that's probably something I need to go unpack. The time is far spent. I want to thank you again, Fakamolo Alpito, for taking the time to Talanoa to Planticas and move this conversation forward of what it means to be, to exist. And I have appreciated this conversation and want to let you know, you are always invited to this podcast. Gainga, my people who support me, thank you for tuning in. I hope to create more episodes of my PhD student experience and bring more content that we can think of the nuances of who we are and how to come at things more critically. Fakamalo Alpito for joining in and go ahead and check my other social platforms to get at me for any inquiries or ideas of ways I can improve and expand this conversation. Malo.